Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Tothy, let's hope 2021 is the march of years. You know, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Well, it certainly has started out as a lion, hasn't it? Um, these are mm. hard times for the country and health, the healthcare community in particular, I would say. Yeah, sadly, you are you're correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these trying times make physician burnout a real issue. Thankfully, we have a guest to help us with that topic. Right, you are speaking with Susan Quirk today. She's an expert on physician hiring and retention. But before we get to that interview, what is the word of the show? Sitherism, which is the rustling of leaves. Oh, well, Mike, I'm so glad that you got to pronounce that because when I looked at it in writing, I thought, now how the heck is that supposed to be pronounced? I would have had to consult Google on that one, but <laughs> very nice. And with that completed, here is your interview. I'm pleased today to welcome Susan Cork to Sound Practice. Susan has many years of experience assisting healthcare entities hire and retain physicians. She's certainly a national expert in keeping healthcare staff productive and engaged, but really beyond that, Susan has the ability to bring out the best in the physicians that she works with, which is a tremendous skill and asset for any any organization to have someone like that assisting them. And I am so very fortunate to be able to welcome Susan Court to Sound Practice. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Susan, you, you've been in this this field for over 25 years. How, how did you begin? How did you get started? Well, I was hired by a, the business strategy side of Towers, then Towers Perrin, called Crescent, McCormick, and Paget. And the first projects that came down the pike were very large-scale business strategy jobs. So broad-scale healthcare system strategies. And I did that for a few years. But if you really want to get successful within the Towers culture, you had to jump over to the gold standard side, which was essentially the compensation side. And given most healthcare organizations were 501c3, they had to use strategy-based compensation measures. So I got started um, and I worked in New York when I got started on the comp side doing executive compensation for a lot of the majors, Sloan Kettering, Mount Sinai, et cetera, but also working with a lot of deans to work with physicians in terms of how do you evaluate and you know, help guide the development of an academic physician within a major healthcare entity. So that's how I got started. Very, very interesting. It, I think you gave some idea uh, to me, but maybe we could talk about the size of the average client or, or entity that you work with now. So the average side size is really depends whether I'm working for a, a large multi-specialty practice um, like a DaVita or DuPage, right? These are over 150 physicians, lots of specialty areas, 
or if I'm working for a provider, whether it's Loma Linda, it's University of Chicago Health, or it's you know Kettering Health in one of their community hospitals. Let's try to think back to those pre-COVID days of, uh, of, of early uh, 2020. Physician retention's been an issue you've considered for a lot of years. Would it be fair to say that things have worsened as time's gone on? I think, yes. I think people are starting to get a sense of why physicians leave their organization. Many CEOs I've worked with have been absolutely shocked when involuntary turnover takes over. I actually had a CEO call me two summers ago and say, I'm so excited. I've got 10 ED docs. I said, that's fabulous. Now, how are we going to make sure we retain them? The biggest issue in retention is physicians are not properly onboarded. It's a step that we just like to blow by. And, you know, that is probably one of the biggest issues uh, of retention. And so far, because we're getting more physicians to become employed, you know, somebody, 63% of physicians are employed right now. And during COVID, more folks are running to shelter. And running to shelter is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. Um, walking that bridge to employment and cultural fit for both sides, whether it's the physician or the organization, making sure folks are happy is so, so paramount because it's very expensive, not only monetarily, two and a half times compensation to replace any physician, but also there's brand damage. So I think people are just not really listening to take consideration to all the factors that, you know, why physicians stay? Why would they stay at an organization? I wrote an article a few years ago called Becoming the Physician's Organization of Choice. And I wrote it for Tom Dolan, the president of the American College of Healthcare Executives. And there were some interesting topics that particularly, you know, we raised. One was, you know, really making sure HR was involved. Quite often, HR is not. Um, they're, an, they're an afterthought. They're not involved in the recruiting process. And once physicians get on board, they don't want to deal with them. Lots of reasons on that. Um, some of them are organization specific, but the long and the short of them, short of it is it's just somebody that they they feel is beneath them, which is a real issue. Take take me back because you said something that I found very interesting, which is that the employment relationship may be doomed off the uh, from from the beginning because onboarding wasn't done properly. Can you give me some examples? Sure. So um, I actually have worked with organizations that, you know, have condensed onboarding to a week. So essentially, it's hand them a computer, uh, sign up for benefits, um, 
introduce them to their colleagues and get them credentialized. That's it. There's no um, mentoring. There's no understanding of how this physician fits into the larger organization structure strategy. Um, there's no camaraderie built with a peer mentor. Uh, one of my uh, former colleagues, Dr. Ken Cohen, you know, we figured that onboarding was at least six months. We have to get a physician, first of all, ingrained in the culture, understand where they fit within a business strategy, whatever department they're working on, whether it's in clinic, whether it's telemedicine, wherever they are in the system of care across the care continuum. And what are the performance expectations? Being very clear about those for the first three months, six months, and a year, as well as assigning them a peer mentor and an executive team sponsor. Now, this is a lot of work, but think about all the work that went in to bring a physician into your organization. So the work is worth it because then you have a physician that practices wisely against you know, the, the metrics of a payer contract. They feel part of the team and let's not forget the family. One of the biggest issues and why a lot of physicians have to leave a new environment is their family just doesn't like it. They don't like the city, they don't feel welcomed, things of that nature. So there's no really silver bullet. I think it's a lot of it is organization driven, it's town driven, but it's really important to get to know your doctor and get to know their family and how do you support the whole package? Great, Let, let's shift gears to burnout because we, we certainly hear a lot about physician burnout. And, and I'm interested to know in your experience, major causes of burnout from five years ago versus what they are today. Well, it's interesting. As I prepared to talk to you today, I thought, you know, let me just go back. Let me pull up an article from 2014. One that was written by a very highly regarded organization in Minnesota. The work system, the job demands, um, you know, what are the major issues of clinician burnout and professional well-being? Here's the list. Excessive workload, unmanageable work schedules, and inadequate staffing, administrative burden, workflow interruptions and distractions, inadequate technology usability, time pressure and encroachment on personal time, moral distress, you know, second survivor syndrome, patient factors. And here's, here were the job resources, meaning and purpose in work, organizational culture, alignment of values and expectations. So this is why this is the professional being side of it. Job control, flexibility and autonomy, rewards, professional relationships and social support, and work-life integration. So let's fast forward to COVID. 
There have been some great surveys out there. One uh, done by Medscape. And I reviewed the survey findings from this summer. Um, it was about 7,500 doctors. So during that time, one third of the physicians that responded had a 25% reduction in pay. A lot of that has to do with the lack of electives. 28% had a 26 to 50% drop in pay. Again, a lot of it was you know, due to the electives, but they're a lot lonelier because we're doing things via Zoom. You know, they can't touch their patient, you know, the onset of telemedicine. Um, there's a lot more relationship stress at home, given the fact that, you know, they're working in a very dangerous environment. So I don't think we've conquered many of the factors five years ago. I think we've added to it. And the other thing I would just mention, I don't think we're in physician burnout. I think we're now in physician dumpster fire. And it's something that we really need to think about. And I've had the pleasure of working through a lot of this because Rome wasn't built in a day and it's not gonna be fixed in a day, but you need to be really steadfast and focused. And a lot of organizations aren't. True. I agree with what you're saying, but we have to admit it is somewhat depressing. Give us some hope. What, uh, where, where do you see us moving forward, doing things well, recommendations that you could have uh, for our audience? You know, it's interesting is having worked with physicians um, for so many years, here is what I'm finding is the best solution. To approach physician burnout straight on doesn't work. But to engage physicians in something they really care about. So that would be improving really the workflows and the distractions um, to get them to start taking control of their environment and getting some of the weight off their shoulders. They start to feel as if hey, this feels pretty good. You know what? I think I can make it. And then that is when I really like to introduce the concept of personal well-being. So I think it, you have to begin with, you can't just jump in there. You have to really begin with assessing the environment and understanding from the stakeholders, and I'm talking physician and administration, where are the biggest challenges and actually do almost a heat map of what are individual physicians thinking and which ones are at risk. I would also look at that against the backdrop of involuntary medical errors. And I think when you look at those two things, you can figure out where we need to start. Because obviously the physicians that have increased medical errors and they may have, you know, 
told us flat out, I can't take this anymore. We need to listen. We also, you know, physicians are resilient. Physicians are very resilient. Their training is amazing. The rigor, the focus. And I think if you really get down to the bottom of it, it's their day-to-day lives. The burrs in those saddles that they have to get on that saddle every day and they have to walk into a room that's not properly stacked. They have to get into something where, you know, there's late clinic start times. They have to get into something where a weightless ED they spent months working on is now slipping. The door to Dr. Metric. We have an, a you know, dysfunctional care team. We have issues around a physician-nurse physician dyad that we have just ignored for years. So I think if we start empowering them to take control of the environment and then introduce professional and personal well-being, and that is really when I've seen physicians open up. The other thing is just because an organization thinks what they think are great well-being efforts, it doesn't mean the physician thinks that way. The other thing is physicians are not a monolithic group. So what you might get from a primary care doctor or a surgeon in terms of the best way to help in terms of you know, the well-being efforts, they're going to be different. And you need to have the flexibility and the agility to be able to accommodate what they ask for. Not what you think it is, but what they ask for. Excellent, excellent point. In preparing for our time together today, Susan, I, I read your, your article, Physician Compensation Plans in Value-Based World. Since publishing that article four years ago or so, what are the amendments uh, or, or changes that you would make to it today? I wouldn't make any amendments into what we wanted to get to, which was a physician compensation program that balanced productivity, quality, resource use, advance, advancing care information, and clinical practice improvements. But, but what I would say is we are still back in what we suggested 2015 would be. We're still extremely productivity-based. Productivity-based is really something that we need to get away from. And it's really been difficult for, for CEOs to do that because we've never really made the, the switch from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. So the fee-for-service, we have one foot still in that canoe and we have a, a canoe moving you know, in, in fee-for-value. However, how do we really decide one way or the other? I can tell you productivity does not help um, physician burnout. It, all it does is keep the physician on the hamster wheel. So basically I've come up with an approach that for a base salary, there's a certain level of RVUs that you must meet to be paid a base salary. However, we're not gonna pay you an incentive for that. We're gonna pay you an incentive based upon practice improvement, 
based upon quality and based upon patient experience. Three goals don't necessarily have to be those three. It could be more effective use of APPs. It could be, so which would be a cost control goal. It could be whatever those three strategic goals are. And that's how we're gonna pay you an incentive because one, we don't want you to just focus on the hamster wheel. We want you to focus on high quality, cost-effective medicine to patients that are happy with their encounter. That's what we want to focus you on. We don't want to focus you just on the RVU. So until we really make the leap into that and we're clear that we mean it, um, you know, burnout is just going to continue. And the um, dollars connected to these other critical measures for value-based care and the quadruple aim are just going to limp along. So I'm interested for more of a overview of the formula that you've developed to adequately compensate and retain physicians. Can we talk in a little bit more detail about that? Sure. Um, first of all, the first thing that comes into play is the compensation that is specialty driven. Each specialty has a compensation range and they're essentially several percentiles, the 25th, the 50th, the 75th, the 90th, and the 100th percentile. We really can't go over the 100th in terms of total cash because we're a tax exempt organization. But for certain specialties and particularly for primary care, I have organizations that wanna pay at the 50th percentile. That's crazy. That's saying you want an average physician. Now nobody wants to be cared for by an average physician. So the mix between base salary and incentives um, coming up to that total cash compensation level is really the ticket. So basically, as I said, let's just say you want to align total cash with the 75th percentile. You can align the base salary with say the 50th percentile, but for an incentive, you need to make sure that at target, the 75th percentile is paid because that is really the benchmark of quality that you wanna have in your organization. So I think that's really a good formula. I would not have a heavy base and little incentives because I think incentives are also a great communication tool. This is what's important to us. It's patient quality, safety, and patient experience, or it's process improvement, or it's leveraging the use of APPs or keeping the door to doctor metric down. So it's gonna vary by specialty, but it's, you're gonna have a couple that are the same. So we're all kind of rowing the same way in the boat, but we need to have one that's different, that's specialty driven. And I think that's really the way to pay in the future. Great. What's, um, this may be an, an odd question, but one that, that I'm interested in, 
knowing what you think in your estimation, how big of a role online reviews play in the part of success of a, of a practice? Well, I think they play a very large part. You know, we are moving to the whole consumerism piece. You know, consumerism is extremely important. And I think making sure, one, that it's a good tool. Um, it's one that is at least responded to by, say, 50% of your patients. And sometimes you have to work it a little bit. You know, you have to uh, figure out how to deliver it, whether it's on an app or it's online, but or it's right before they leave or it's within three days. But I think what consumers have choices I think particularly with telemedicine, urgent care, or going to the practice setting, their choices. And I think for your practice, it's extremely important that they want you to be the advocate for their care. So particularly in the primary care world, um, there's certain practices that, you know, it's maybe not as, as big a deal because it's, it's something that was inpatient or it wasn't a very long encounter, but particularly for the primary care physician, I think it's, it's really important. And as you look at Oak Street Health or you look at Village MD, you know, those types of organizations are so dependent upon, you know, how, how was the encounter? Um, because they're just primary care and they need for their organization, you know, for their organization to be very successful, they need for folks to come back and really involve, um, involve them, you know, in their network of care. We touched a little bit, or, or you did, about HR's involvement. And I'm interested to know what you think the rate of change in the HR arena has been in the last 10 years? Um, HR transformation in healthcare is still a little bit behind the curve. Um, and organizations which still have a transactional focus really need to uptick their game. And I'll tell you why. A couple reasons. One is they need a street, they need a seat at the strategy table. They need to be that strategic partner for the C-suite. And those are the types of nuances that are extremely important if you want physicians to relate to you. I think the other thing is the HR arena really needs to become more adept in specific physician needs. So they can kind of, I hate to say, prove their worth, um, but they're worthy of the time of a physician. And the physician also feels as if when they come to them, they're, not, they're being treated um, in a timely manner and, and quickly and also listened to, um, but also in the mode that the physician prefers. So it might be via an app, it might be a Zoom, 
it might be, you know, I have to stop in the office, whatever, but it has to be within, you know, just in time. It's extremely important. And, you know, cause I think to improve value of a relationship, which is known to be like, do I really have to deal with them? And the, and the HR feels the same way. Um, you know, it's, it's, we need to kind of come to a meeting of the minds and a meeting of the expectations, but it's all driven by really the C-suite and making sure that that HR partner is strong and their HR business partners across the continuum of care are equally strong and equally towing the line. I was talking to an organization last week where we're talking a probably about 50 clinics that, you know, they were not towing the line for corporate. And so as a result, they had lots of practices and policies which were amended uh, for one-offs and you can't do that. Makes sense. We're almost out of time, but I would like to take advantage of your tremendous expertise, Susan. And I was hoping that you could tell our audience some small but proactive steps they could take to keep up with uh, the rate of change and things that you're seeing. Any recommendations for our audience? Yes, I think um, being active in professional associations is critical. Um, ASHRA, American Society of Health, Healthcare, Human Resource Administration is typically a good one. Um, but I also think understanding the business strategy, the patient base, and the pressures that your physicians on a daily basis are encountering will demonstrate a certain type of special empathy, which physicians will really appreciate. The other thing is I would have them focus a lot on the recognition and not all about money. So recognition is can be dollars or not dollars. Great advice. Thank you so much for your time. My guest has been Susan Cork, consultant and national expert. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Susan Cork had some really useful information, Mike. I liked this interview. Yeah, so did I, Tothi. Uh, Susan certainly is a pro when it comes to physician hiring and retention. She flagged a number of common mistakes made by healthcare systems when employing uh, physicians. I think it's helpful to our audience. Agreed. And unfortunately, Mike, that brings us to the end of another episode of Sound Practice. We hope our audience enjoyed this one. If they did, I hope that they'll rate us on Apple Podcast or Google Play. Yeah, we always appreciate that. And if you'd like to give us feedback directly or make a suggestion about the podcast, please send us an email to feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. Please join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. 
If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man and Robin, Rick Cabal.